a lot of things that pioneers have to do is they take on the burden of doing the right thing for things they might not ever enjoy the benefits of the positive results. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Deanne Turner's mother gave up a potential career as a lawyer to make a career out of raising her family, and she did an amazing job. Deanne says that her mother made sure she never went hungry, made their home a loving space, and led her to a faith in Christ. And everything that Deanne has done in her life has been created on that foundation. Deanne had a wildly successful career at Chick-fil-A, starting at the age of 21 and working her way up to vice president. However, landing a job at Chick-fil-A did not come easily. When she first applied for a marketing and advertising position, the company said they didn't have anything for her. But then she experienced a moment of serendipity or divine intervention. Her husband helped a woman change her tire, found out that she was resigning from the advertising department of Chick-fil-A because of a family move and suggested that Deanne approach them again. Deanne landed the job, although she actually ended up starting out in human resources, and this ended up being a perfect fit for her because she was responsible for selecting Chick-fil-A franchisees. Her initial question to applicants was always about their first job. She wanted a true entrepreneur, someone who, like Deanne, was willing to create a job for themselves. Deanne wanted to hear a story that reminded her of her own first job selling candy and drinks to kids on their way to their neighborhood swimming pool. But as much as she loved working for Chick-fil-A, Deanne ultimately came to realize she was doing the work that God gave her to do instead of the work that God made her to do, which I love. Now she is helping organizations build an extraordinary customer culture by selecting and growing extraordinary talent. Her new book, Bet on Talent, is based on the principle that decisions about people are the most important decisions a leader makes. Now, this is a great episode with Deanne Turner. She is the first female officer of Chick-fil-A. There's so much insight that she shares, things that she's never talked about before. So be sure to bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Deanne Turner, I am so curious to know what your first job was. (laughs) My first job that I'll claim I was about eight years old and my dad's best friend owned a grocery store. And I had entrepreneurial roots from the time I was uh, really young. And our home was on the path to the neighborhood swimming pool. So every summer, I would buy from my dad's best friend 
at wholesale prices, candy and drinks. And I would set up, this was probably, I'm not sure this was legal now, Mike, but anyway, I would set up a little store underneath our um, deck. So on the patio underneath our deck, which was on the footpath to the swimming pool. And the kids would come by and they would buy candy and drinks from me. And I would take my profits and I'd go back and buy some more. And I grew a little business for several summers um, doing that. And uh, I knew right then that I had some entrepreneurial roots and loved the idea of owning my own business. Do you recall like having an idea at that point, like intuitively of your negotiating skills and recognizing market demand? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I recognize market demand for sure. Um, (laughs) Negotiating skills, I'm not sure they were developed, but I knew I liked being my own boss. I liked that idea. I love that. That's a, that's, you know, I actually have had many people and one, obviously over the last three years, many entrepreneurs uh, on this show and non-entrepreneurs alike, but the, the, the common thread that many of them share is the fact that they had entrepreneurial uh, motivations and aspirations from a very young age, including there was a guy on my show named Cameron Harold, who's the former chief operating officer of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Mm-hmm. And um, he shared a story where he grew up in Canada and they, they would be able... I guess the local laundromat I'm totally going to ruin the story probably, but the local laundromat in his town wanted to recycle the the um, the hangers that they put their clothes on when they delivered the goods to the, the clients, right? So, so uh, Cameron and his friends would go around the neighborhood and they would collect these old wire hangers and they would return them back to the laundromat or the dry cleaner and they would get two cents a hanger. So... It, it, oh, what know. a great... Yeah. <laughs> What a great start. Uh, yeah, totally. I always, I, you know, I typically, as we were talking before I hit, we hit record, I typically only do the, the first, either who was your childhood hero or, or what was your first job. But in your case, I understand that you are actually very excited to also answer the question, who was your childhood hero? So why don't you share with us who it was and why? Sure. My mother was definitely, hands down, my childhood hero. Uh, She was the first servant leader I ever knew. Uh, She took care of the family. She really gave up her own dreams to do that. She was a very smart, well, accomplished woman, um, both as a stay-at-home mom, but she'd also given up her potential career as a lawyer. Went to law school and decided that um, she was going to stay home with her family and with her children, which I admire tremendously. But she took those skills into our home and she created an amazing environment in which to grow up. She, um, she took care of every need. And probably most importantly, is my mother is the one who led me to faith in um, my relationship with Christ. So uh, she's my childhood hero. And I think everything I've done in my life has been a foundation on that. Wow. That, that is so inspirational. What, do you, what, did, you, what did she teach you about passion? Well, I think what I learned from her about passion is, I mean, whatever she did, she did it well. She did it, I would say perfectly, although there are no perfect people, but she she had this ability. I mean, you know, she was the most fantastic, and is the most fantastic cook I know. Uh, She's Hmm. the best. uh, I mean, when you talk about really keeping a home, I mean, constantly 
Uh, I mean, our home was always spotless, but she, you know, was constantly redecorating and remodeling and doing her own home projects. And everything she touched was just gorgeous. She arranged flowers and she did cake decorating and she led Bible studies. And she, I mean, you know, she was just one of these people that made a career out of raising her family. And uh, I, it, it's just impressive. And I've never, I have to admit, I've never been able to live up to that part of it. <laughs> wow. You know, um, you and I have, this is our first time ever talking, right? Just so the audience knows that this is not planned, but I actually, and we talked briefly about my book, Master the Key. And there's a character in the story that I think she doesn't play a huge role in the story. She's the main character's wife. But I think that based on the story you just shared about your mother, her character is going to really resonate with you. Oh, I can't Uh, wait to read about it. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about talent today because that was your your role, your one of your two roles at Chick-fil-A. But I want to stay with your mom for a second because here you have this upward mobile, uh, very aspirational, talented, gifted woman, full of power and potential, who could have gone on and become a rock star attorney, you know, and and she decides to lay that dream down for a different dream, not a, a lesser dream or or anything, but just a different dream, right? And to really lean into that. I think that's that's an obstacle that many entrepreneurs don't believe they can necessarily overcome because they they look at their they're not treating them the same way, right? They're looking at they're looking at dreams as as one's better than the other. But your right. mom was able to take her giftedness and her talents and deliver them in a different way in this new dream. What did she teach you about finding joy in the redistribution of talent? You know, as you described what she did, you know, what the word that comes to mind is capacity and this tremendous capacity she had. So she had that capacity regardless of what role she chose for herself. And um, so she chose the role that she did. And she, you know, my mother was one and when I think about the joy, she always whistled in the kitchen. Mm. And I don't whistle when I cook, to be honest, Mike. <laughs> you know, I don't see it quite with the same joy that she did. And, and you know, I never talked to her too much about that very thing. But I think that was such an influence to me um, because I never felt like, you know, I knew what her background was. I knew what choices she had made. But because... Because she was happy and because she whistled and because she was so committed and so involved in every single thing we did, not over involved, but very engaged and on top of it, you know, I realized that the choices she made, that she was full of joy for those. Mm. You know, we, we talked about your first job. We talked about your mom and how she inspired you and the joy that she had. And, and I'm sure that she cultivated your ability to dream about what your own potential was. Did you always dream of working at a major corporation like Chick-fil-A? No, in fact, you know, growing up, um, my dad was an attorney. And so the, what I was exposed to were professional careers, you know, lawyers, doctors, teachers. And my choice from the time I was young was to be a writer. 
Um, I started writing when I was really young too. I'd sit hours at my desk in my room and write. I wrote poems and and in fact, somebody sent me one that I uh, the other day that they found in the, they were cleaning out their house and they found a poem that I wrote them when I was a little girl. But when I um, I went to school, I studied journalism. I was editor in chief of the high school newspaper. I was really into all that. And but when I got out of college the first time, I realized that people. Um, a couple of things. One was that I didn't have the experience that um, people would want to read about, or at least that's what I believed at the time. And then secondly, it was a hard way to make a living at that time. Still is, but definitely um, at that point. So I um, put that dream aside and I totally accidentally fell into my corporate career. How's, what's the story there? Did you, did you trip into it or did, did somebody <laughs> open the door or how, how did it work? So uh, I married my husband. Um, uh, we were actually still in school. He was studying to be a pastor. And, and so he became a pastor and we moved back home to Atlanta. And I needed a job in that mode my background in the journalism field. I went to work for an advertising firm. I stayed there a short period of time. He was a pastor at a church not far from Chick-fil-A. And I needed to get a job closer to where his church was so that we could live in the community where he was serving. And so he had spent time at Chick-fil-A with, with people in our church who worked there. He wouldn't have lunch at the corporate office, as it was called at the time. And, and he would have lunch there. And he'd come home and say, you know, you really should apply for a job at Chick-fil-A. I was a little bit reticent at first, even though I'd grown up in Atlanta and eaten Chick-fil-A sandwiches all my life. I didn't know much about the corporate culture or the opportunity there. But finally, at his urging, I applied for a job, trying to get a job in marketing, advertising, since that was my background. Well, I applied, and two weeks later, they sent me a really nice, no, thank you. You're, you don't have any, uh, you don't have skills and background that fit what we have available. So I told him, I said, well, that's that. Done with that. I tried. And, and he said, not so soon. You, you, you need to try again. <laughs> so I tried again. And guess what? Two weeks after I applied, I got the same version or version of the same letter. Um, but after that, I was really intrigued. Uh, maybe it was that uh, confidence that my mother helped instill in me that, you know, somebody certainly wants me to uh, be a part of their organization. So I kept pursuing it. And for about six months, I just drove them nuts, calling them, asking about opportunities. Then one day, my husband's sitting at the church right down the street from Chick-fil-A, and a woman came, comes in, and she has a flat tire. Now, Mike, remember, this was long before cell phones, so she needed to use a phone to call her husband. My husband said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll change the tire for you. And so he went out and changed her flat tire. When she was done, he handed her a, or she handed him a uh, coupon for a free Chick-fil-A sandwich. And he said, do you work at Chick-fil-A? And she said, well, I do, but I've resigned because my husband's been relocated. My husband said, well, what department do you work in? And she replied, advertising. And my husband jumped on the, ushered her quickly out of the church, <laughs> jumped on the phone, called me and said, they have a job in advertising. I called the human resources department, as it was called at that time, and talked to that same friendly voice, Gail. And um, I said, I understand you have a job in advertising, and I'd like to apply. I really think that they were just tired of hearing from me and they wanted to, to resolve it once and for all. So they invited me in for an interview and I went through a month, several months long process. And when I finally got to my final interview with the vice president of human resources, 
he said, well, they're going to make you an offer to work in advertising, but I have this job in human resources if you're interested. And here I was, 21 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know what? This might be kind of interesting. I like these people in HR. Well, of course you like the people in HR because they're paid to be nice, right? So so I said, I like these people. I'm going to do this for a couple of years. And then I'll go back to marketing because I know where the jobs, I'll know where the jobs are. So I took the job in human resources. And until I left Chick-fil-A, I never did really any marketing or advertising work. Wow. Wow. Yeah. In fact, you ultimately climbed the ranks to become one of the first female, I think the first female officer at Chick-fil-A. Well, I was very fortunate because I had a uh, I had a great mentor, uh, the president of Chick-fil-A, Jimmy Collins. He saw something in me early on and uh, just, I mean, he was a great mentor. He didn't just help me and encourage me. He held me accountable and he really taught me the foundational culture of Chick-fil-A, how to apply it, how to select talent for it, and uh, gave me opportunities to succeed in that. And so eventually I did, uh, after my uh, boss retired, who was then leading human resources, I did uh, become vice president of human resources. And that function began to grow and grow. And part of my responsibility, uh, actually the most enjoyable part of my responsibility was selecting Chick-fil-A franchisees. And that's when those entrepreneurial roots from my childhood and other things I explored growing up, uh, it really came to light because one of my first questions that I always ask those franchisees is the same question you asked me. I said, what was your first job? I might ask them, what was the first thing they ever sold? And if they told me that it was a lemonade stand or they delivered newspapers or like you were telling the story about you know, picking up coat hangers and returning them to the drive uh, to the dry cleaners when those when I got those answers I knew I was sitting with a real entrepreneur when they mm. told me the first thing they sold was in college fundraising for their fraternity I wasn't necessarily really an entrepreneur so I love that role of selecting franchisees and then I had the responsibility for the corporate human resources as well so just a fantastic uh, career path doing something that I never dreamed I would be doing, even at 21, much less when I was a kid. We're going to talk about breaking barriers in a second um, and, and what that was like. But I want to actually stay with something that you, you brought up about the commonality that a, a lot of entrepreneurs share, whether it's a potential franchisee or, or you as a little kid selling candy, right? Or me as a newspaper boy wrapping the newspapers. I can still smell them uh, in my front porch and, and strapping them to the back of my bike as I rode around the neighborhood and throw through the newspapers into the driveways. What is up, my friends? I want you to hit pause right now and head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Master the Key. This is a book that has a transformational message that is having a positive impact in the lives of those who read it. And don't just take my word for it. Head over to Amazon. And when you buy, be sure to read the over 65 reviews that the book has received. And if you don't take their word for it, you could take the the words of the people that have endorsed this book. Folks like Lou Holtz, Mel Robbins, Greg Amundsen, Cheryl O'Loughlin, John Gordon, and many, many others. So hit pause 
head over to Amazon, pick yourself up a copy or two of Master the Key, one for yourself, one for someone you love, and let me know what you think about the book by leaving a review on Amazon, writing an honest review, whether you like it or love it or hate it. And then if you want to, you could also do a video video review on Facebook. Many people have done that as well, sharing their insights that the book has revealed to them. So again, hit pause, head over to Amazon, pick up a copy or two of Master the Key. I guarantee you that you will not be disappointed. Now back to the show. The act of being an entrepreneur is really facilitating an act of service in some way, shape, or form, right? Serving other people. And it requires us to either help people discover a need, or maybe they've already vocalized in the case of, you know, a newspaper that they have a need and they need it, they want it met, right? And right. so it prevent it prevent presents rather an opportunity for you or I to step up and to serve. And over the course of your professional and personal career as a, as a wife and mom, what have you learned about serving other people's needs? Well, first of all, it's hard to constantly stay in that mindset. You know, and, and I think what you brought out about that's at the heart of being an entrepreneur, some of the Greatest entrepreneurs I know, of course, are Chick-fil-A franchisees. And I watch this in them. I watch which they, what they teach their team members. Uh, but they're constantly thinking about how can I serve someone else? You know, you remind me of a story about Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And Truett, a long story about his entrepreneurial roots. But he did, like you, he had a newspaper route as a young man. and. He would love to hear your description of that, of how you can remember the smell. But he also, his first entrepreneurial outing was that he would go and buy a case of Cokes, uh, which would be six at the time, glass bottle Cokes. And he put them in a wagon. He was five years old and go around his neighborhood. He'd buy that case of Cokes for quarter and he'd sell them each for a nickel, making a nickel profit. And then he'd go back and and restock his, his goods. And that was his original entrepreneurial roots. And here he was, just, just fast forward, you know, 80, 85 years later, he's still an entrepreneur. At age 91, he opened his last new restaurant concept um, before he, he died uh, in 2014. He, um, and he would go to his own restaurants and he would pick up lemon pies and deliver them to the widows in his neighborhood. So wow. he had made billions of dollars, but he was still serving. Mm. So when I think about the examples that I've been surrounded by, I have to say that I almost feel like I could never measure up, even though started out that way in life of a, a fantastic servant leadership model. And my mother worked all those years for Truett Cathy and saw it. Um, it's still very hard to live up to, but I think it's very true if we're going to uh, run our own business, then we constantly have to be thinking about who can we serve and how can we meet their needs. I love that story. I love that story. And as a Chick Fil A fan myself, my family and I, we live in Northern California, like in just about an hour and a half south of Santa Cruz, and we don't really have a Chick Fil A anywhere directly nearby us. I think the closest ones in Gilroy, California, but 
Mm. Um, so there's a there's an opportunity for any ch- franchisees out there to expand. But you know, I've certainly experienced the 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 heart of service in that in that organization when we step in there. Just you you feel like you're going to be taken care of in an old Southern hospitality kind of way. And and I haven't told you this, but um, I, I have Georgia roots as well. I was actually born at in Hinesville, Georgia. Oh at, wow! Uh, at Fort. My dad was stationed at Fort Stewart, and uh, my grandmother, his mother, is from Oklahoma. So I have a little bit of the an understanding of what Southern hospitality is like. And one of the things about Southern hospitality is that it is not fast paced, and I don't mean it's slow. I just mean it's intentional. It's deliberate. It's not focused on turning the tables. And even though Chick Fil A is a is a uh, fast food chain, you know you you still get the essence of that deliberate, intentional service model. You know that that experience that you that you associate with Southern hospitality. And as you were talking about service, I was thinking about how we have as a culture, in 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 particular in Western civilization. How we have forsaken service for speed, and I think about my second job, which was at a gas station, and I remember working at this gas station. I was a gas boy, you know, mm-hmm. and and you would a car would pull in, and they pull in on one of two sides: the full service side or the self service side. And the full service side would get a ding ding. And they wouldn't have to get out of the car, and I'd run out there and I'd ask them what they wanted—regular or unleaded—and uh, um, and I'd you know pump the gas, I'd clean their uh, windshield, and they'd be on their way. And then you know, time and, and efficiency and all of those great things caught up, and all of a sudden everything became quick service, self service, right? Right. And it, and. And it's not to say that efficiency and innovation is something that should should be, you know, um, complained about because it actually can be used really well and and to really help people accomplish things. But I think that we shouldn't just focus on on efficiency for efficiency's sake. So as as a leader yourself, who led this organization. And helped grow this organization, and saw many talented people, and you experienced innovation um, both as a culture as well as technologically. How did you see that service servant leader culture continue to develop and grow amidst innovation and efficiency? Well, you led me right to uh, the story I was thinking about as you were talking, which is, um, you know, what drove this was not just, you say it it was on both sides. It's on the customer's point of view, but it was also on the business. So shortage of labor drives some of that speed, some of those speed issues and having to think about technology as a solution to keep the speed up. But then when you do that from the both the customer and the organization's point of view. If you if you use technology too much, then you'll lose the personal touch that creates that emotional connection that you describe when you when you drive down to the Chick Fil A closest to you. So 
what so the example was Chick-fil-A had these long drive-through lines and 70% of the business is coming through the drive-through line. And so for a customer to wait a long time or for the traffic to back up into the street obviously wasn't acceptable. And so, but if we use some technology, then it was going to be, but we're going to lose that personal touch that we had with customers. Well, Chick-fil-A did something, in my opinion, it's pretty brilliant. They actually increased the personal touch and the speed at the same time. And so prior to um, this play they made, you'd go to the drive through speaker and you wouldn't have a personal interaction with a Chick-fil-A employee until you arrived at the window. And at their window, hopefully you'd get a smile and they didn't hold your bag out the window for you to sort of drive through. It was a true engagement there. But when they needed to increase speed, that what they actually did is use technology and put team members with iPads in the drive-through. And so as you came into the line, or as you come into the line, a team member will greet you and they'll start talking with you. They'll actually walk beside your car as you're driving through the line, taking your order and engaging with you in person. So it was really a brilliant um, idea that they've executed extraordinarily well. It started very uh, it was a very rudimentary process in the beginning, and now, of course, they've sophisticated it, but they actually found a way to increase the personal engagement while they sped up service at the same time. And I've actually experienced that. I didn't, I, you know, that, make, that makes total sense because you're, you're not looking at the advancement of technology as an obstacle, but rather an opportunity to, to take a both-and approach and say, how can we continue our personal touch and integrate technology and take advantage of it without losing that personal touch. And it reminds me of a story that I had, an experience I had rather when I was driving back to Las Vegas. I was on a road trip with my wife. We were driving from Utah back to Las Vegas and we pulled into a Chick-fil-A right outside Las Vegas and there was a young man who was out there with his iPad taking our order and as you just described, and it was so, it was such a great experience, and and I wanted to offer him a tip at the you know before we drove off, and he said we can't take, we can't take, we're not, we don't accept tips is basically what he said, and I was a little bit, you know, I was like oh okay, um, and but I'm so fascinated by that. Where what do you recall what the reasons were for? For the that policy is it is it because everybody ex, uh, should expect exceptional service and it's not something that is uh, going the extra mile it's just a standard and therefore we don't need tips. Well, here's something that's kind of funny. It's not a policy or a practice for Chick Fil A as an organization. So every Chick Fil A and let me explain that further though. My, I would be surprised if team members did take tips, but I think you can even actually appreciate this even more because. I think this is a reflection of individual judgment too. But all of Chick-fil-A team members are employed by individual franchisees. So those, so their hiring policies, their um, a lot of the way they manage their restaurant is independent. Of course, they have brand standards, but Chick-fil-A's goal is not to make a lot of rules, practices, and policies because that takes away individual creativity and team collaboration. But instead, over time, we've tried to teach principles that can be applied instead of rules that are complied to. 
And so I don't know in your situation whether it was a quote unquote policy of that restaurant or it was the individual's person applying the principles they had learned through working for their franchisee in Chick-fil-A. But um, I would tell you that there's probably, I don't know of a, a national, a nationwide policy about that, but I'm not surprised. And, um, you know, it's one of the things I love about Publix supermarkets when I go there. Um, they don't take tips either. It's just their pleasure to walk me to my car with my groceries and put them in mm-hmm. the car um, for me. So I think service-minded organizations that are really about the customer, I think they do consider that to be um, second-mile service to help you in that way and, and part of their everyday job. And you know they hope you'll come back because you're treated that way. I want to go back to your your entry into the the officer ranks of the company uh, and and how that was pretty barrier breaking at the time I would imagine and and change can oftentimes or at least people say anyway that that change is is hard right and right. so I would love to learn a little bit more about how you grew comfortable with your own voice at that table among mostly men or maybe all men at that time uh, in, in those officer ranks and how you were welcomed and how your voice was added, added a different color, a different layer, a different feel, a different potential to what Chick-fil-A could achieve as an organization and how that edified you. Sure. Well, um, quite honestly, it was difficult. And it's difficult for anybody that's in that seat because, you know, when we create true diversity, it's when there's more than one. And I like to think that my role was helping the organization grow to that next point. I mean, now it has, you know, lots of diversity in its um, most senior ranks and um, certainly far more than ever before. And so I like to think that that was part of the growing process for them. And that was really my role is to help um, do that. I didn't always do that well. I was learning while they were learning. So we were learning on each other. You know, I could probably write a whole book of lessons of things I would do, actually do differently in that transition. So all that's to say that it was a difficult transition, but we worked hard at it because um, we knew that we needed to make that successful. We needed to create a path for others and to break that barrier, you know, to blow that open and to allow that opportunity. The, you know, I would, there were a couple of things that were going on. It wasn't just that I was the first woman in that role, but it was really the role human resources was playing in the company at the time as well. Uh, it was a big transition for the organization. As a small entrepreneurial company, HR was handled by the different leaders. You know, they really, they selected their own talent. They um, early on when I first came to the company, they uh, that was part of the reason that I had the role that I did was that it was uh, kind of all over the place, and we needed to rein it in a little bit because, frankly, the candidates were having a poor experience. Chick Fil A was getting great talent from early on because of the principles and practices that Truett taught us, and we put in place, but. But the candidate wasn't having a great experience. So that was a lot of my job was to provide a very better candidate experience. I used to say that if even if Chick-fil-A, even if people didn't get a job at Chick-fil-A, I wanted them to leave with a 
a good taste in their mouth for us so that they'd remain a customer. So anyway, HR was still, that was the other big barrier breaking thing was really trying to move the organization to a place where they were accepting of the fact that there might be some centralized expertise to help um, select, steward, and sustain talent within the organization. It was generally accepted that HR's role was to select franchisees, but not people were still reticent about um, HR being too involved in their people to, um, selection and development, which was common in the mid-80s. That wasn't unusual in the mid-80s and early 90s for organizations to feel that way. So I think that when I look back on it, I wasn't um, the biggest barrier, the biggest hurdle wasn't that I was the only woman in the rule, uh, only only woman in the room. It was what I was representing, which was the function that I was trying to move um, the organization to. And there again, I think that my role was to be a pioneer. Um, it wasn't always easy, but over time, as we brought in more and more talented human resources professionals. Um, and even today, Chick-fil-A just has grown tremendously and, and put in really strong systems, obviously, um, for doing this work. And I think my role was just to help them over that hump in their history to, um, to go from entrepreneurial organization to what they've become today and adopt the systems and practices that make that possible to be scalable. That's a, a power, powerful example. Um, and lesson, I think that people can really garner from that. I also think that you may have um, uncovered the title for your third book, which uh, which you haven't written yet, but you will, and you, you can title it "Learning on Each Other." Oh, I like uh, that. I'm going to write that down, Mike. I'll have to give you <laughs> if if my publisher goes for that for book three, I'll have to give you credit for that. Yeah, learning on each other instead of leaning on each yeah. other. Yeah, learning on each other. I love that concept. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur holds you to call. Deanne, that story is incredibly powerful. And I think that it must have been challenging to be the vanguard, the catalyst, the person that ultimately was the, the game changer because you were the only one at the table at that time. And there, there must have been times where you felt alone and, and you had to fight off maybe some, some self-doubt, some imposter syndrome. Who did you abide in? Who, did, who helped you? Uh, reframe your stinking thinking as as it's said sometimes so that you can continue to lead uh, the way that you were called to lead and and maybe you maybe you didn't battle with those thoughts maybe I'm making an assumption no Mike you're right I, I did from time to time battle with those things and and some some of it I'm just reflecting back on you've asked me questions that quite frankly nobody's asked me and um, 
And so as I, I reflect on it, uh, I realize some emotions that maybe I didn't acknowledge at the time. I was really busy. I had this uh, growing, quickly growing career, three small boys at home and a husband who was working crazy hours. So I didn't have a lot of time um, to reflect on it when I was in it. I just did what needed to happen next. When I hit a wall, I had a mantra, find a way forward. And I hit a lot of them. And that's what I would do is just, I had to find a way forward. I had, when you ask me about people who helped me, I think about um, Jimmy Collins, uh, my mentor and sponsor champion that I referred to earlier, that was the former president of Chick-fil-A. He retired at about the same time that I took over this leadership. And so I began working for Tim Tosopoulos, who's now the president of Chick-fil-A and chief operating officer, and enjoyed that relationship for about 16 years. And Tim was a great confidant as a leader. Obviously, in my role, some of the things just couldn't be shared with anyone else. And that's the lonely part of being a chief HR officer is that you have to, um, you can't share you know, the tough things with other people. And so Tim was great. And one of the things that Tim did for me that I became, I I appreciate more and more over the years was he was an internal optimist and he rubbed off on me. And the other thing he did was hold me accountable for a positive attitude about everything and to be a positive leader and the funny thing was, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't grow up that way. I wasn't, the, I didn't have the most positive outlook at times. But after working with Tim, that, that was one of the things that did a 180 degree change so much so that when I later took a new role in the organization, I had people who worked with me that were frustrated because I had too much of a positive outlook. <laughs> so Tim was a great, uh, great leader in that respect in helping me navigate that time. And then um, I did, you know, I love the question that Gallup asked in their Q12 survey. Some people think it's ridiculous, but I understand it completely. Says, do you have a best friend at work? And I did have a best friend at work. And in fact, it's really cool because she became Chick-fil-A's first female executive committee member just a few years back. And she really paved the way for a lot of growth too. But we had uh, an amazing friendship. Um, over the third, uh, the thirty year, thirty three years I was at Chick Fil A, she was there thirty of them, and and um, close to thirty of them, and so we had an amazing friendship um, of helping one another. And in a lot of organizations, you don't find that with women; they tend to mm. compete with one another. And we didn't do that at all. We actually um, really helped um, each other grow and were advocates for one another. Um, and also confidence, confidants when the, the time um, required it during that time. Mm, I love that powerful story. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Rudy, right? The, the guy who played at Notre Dame and walked on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I had the opportunity to be in a small room with him. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard him speak, but he's a, he's a great storyteller. And he shares very um, deeply about his story beyond what you see in the movie and you might recall in the movie there's the guy that played Rudy I think his name is Sean Austin yes um, Sean Austin uh-huh yeah when he's sitting on the bench and he opens the letters from from the University of Notre Dame rejecting him right and he crumples mm-hmm. the letters up and he throws them on the ground and he he walks away and you had similar things. You got these rejection letters from Chick-fil-A. You crumpled them up, threw them in the trash, and moved on your way. There were different challenges that 
you faced as an executive at Chick-fil-A. But one of the commonalities that you and Rudy share, are you ready for this? I asked him, I said, Rudy, when you got those rejection letters and you crumpled them up and threw them on the ground or whatever you did with them, what did you tell yourself to keep moving forward? And this is what he said, I will find a way. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's what you, the answer that you just gave too. It's so awesome. Well, I, I haven't had anybody make a move me, movie about me or <laughs> shout my name in Notre Dame Stadium. So, <laughs> but that's that's great, and I I, I think that's a common trait. Um, I mean, what choice do we really have, right? And mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you one story. I I was uh, I was traveling with another executive, and we were sitting at dinner, and I was pursuing what I believed to be the right strategy. And he told me that he thought I was not. <laughs> and he was senior to me in the organization, and he really felt like that's not the right strategy. But I was certain it was the right thing for the organization. And you know, one of the things that um, I probably was naive about um, most of my career was politics. And I just, I just wanted to do the right thing. And I had learned that from Truett. I've learned that from Jimmy Collins. I've learned it from Tim Pasopoulos. And so I would often, um, even times when I shouldn't probably, go to the mat over the right thing. And I remember getting on the airplane and I was discouraged. I went back to my hotel room that night, not knowing what I was going to do. I prayed about it. And I thought, wow, this is really a tough situation because I'm going against the grain and I'm about to mess something up here for me. And I woke up the next morning, we went and got on the plane. I went to my seat and I wrote down in my journal. You can tell I write down my thoughts a lot, but I wrote down, I either need to find an exit strategy or a way forward. And Mm. I, I focused on the way forward. That was what I decided to do. And I didn't necessarily see the success of that, but it became a very successful strategy for the organization even after I no longer had that role. And mm. even today, it's worked for them. It was the right thing to do. And I don't say that by any means to pat myself on the back. I, I really mean it because a lot of things that pioneers have to do is they take on the burden of doing the right thing for things they might not ever enjoy the benefits of the positive results. Mm. You know, And that's just, that's just the role. That's mm-hmm. just the role that God gave me to fill. And it didn't mean that I was always going to get to to see the fruits of my labor or to experience the benefits of that. And um, so that that's how to me to um, I dealt with you know that kind of struggle or those kinds of barriers. You know, you did mention a moment ago that you you ultimately you were the VP of HR and the chief chief HR officer and then you ultimately transitioned to a new role to lead sustainability, not necessarily a lateral move that one would expect, but but nevertheless, you are obviously a gifted and a talented person. And I think many people believe that their giftedness or their talent only lies in one area. And when that area is changed or moved or relocated, then then they can no longer thrive there because that's not where their gifts lie. And I don't I don't believe that. I think that our giftedness um, 
is is can be expressed in a multitude of different ways, and it's up to us to have the openness um, to challenge how we look at our giftedness. So when you moved from that role of from HR to sustainability, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting time in the the company. I worked uh, for a family-owned business, which means family members joined the organization. And, and so at the time I moved um, from my role in talent, it was time for a family member to become the chief people officer. Um, we had worked together for oh, six or seven years, and he had prepared for that role. Uh, he took that role, and then you know he needed to create his own team and, and move things forward. And so it so happened at the time I had I had anticipated this and actually proposed a couple of years prior that I might would launch and lead Chick Fil A's social responsibility function. I felt like that was something that we needed, and I really wasn't interested in in leaving the organization. And while you know that was certainly an opportune time to go and do similar work for someone else, I loved the organization and I wanted to remain a part of it and. I think they felt like I was contributing and um, wanted me to remain a part of it. So we had a reorganization and the outside consultants came in and they said, you know, one of the roles you don't have in this organization is you don't have social responsibility function. And so our leadership said, yes, and we know just the person who wants to do that. So originally, I have to admit to you that it was positioned as it was going to carry over some of those people responsibilities and some of the connection to the people part of the business. And that's what I was really attracted uh, by. In, and as we um, got into the work, what happened was that it was, um, du- it was duplicative because some of the things that we were trying to impact um, were actually owned in other parts of the business. But what wasn't owned at that time was the sustainability piece. No one, we didn't have centralized focus or even we, we needed a focus on environmental sustainability, things like food waste, packaging waste, uh, animal welfare, and those types of things. And so the job evolved into sustainability. And that's when it became really funny because I laugh and say, I wasn't even a good recycler when I assumed <laughs> that role. Uh, but you know what you learn in a company and in Chick-fil-A in my career went from 175 million when I started there to 10 and a half billion when I left. And when an organization is growing that way, you need agile leaders that can shift and do other things. And you don't necessarily have they don't necessarily have to have an expertise in what they're leading. They just have to be able to lead it. And so that's what I was asked to do at that point. I didn't have expertise in sustainability, but I knew how to bet on talent. I knew how to select talent that who are experts. And I was very comfortable in letting them do what they do best. And so um, I was fortunate to be surrounded by some people that did know how to do the work and taught me and was patient with me while I learned because I did change my personal practices. I did. Um, it changed my viewpoint on a lot of things. And um so I was, re- and one of the things that I was kind of known for, obviously, is I like to build things. So I was building something new and uh, leading that function. That was really exciting. So I'll go ahead and tell the rest of the story. It's like, then why did you retire? Um, so after doing that for about three years, Chick-fil-A offered 100 staff members, long-term staff members, an outstanding 
early retirement option. And um, all of these staff members had the opportunity to stay and they all had a fantastic opportunity to pursue their dreams. And I had never thought about it. I really thought I would be at Chick-fil-A a good num- another 10 or 11 years. And But the opportunity came along and, and I looked at um, the work that I was doing and all of the sudden, I realized what I'd been doing for three years. I had been doing the work God gave me to do instead of the work that God made me to do. And I know that the work that he made me to do was to help other people find their path, to help organizations build, grow, and strengthen their culture, and to help um, leaders select, steward, and sustain extraordinary talent. And that was what I was made to do. And so I, um, it was the hardest decision I ever made. I actually tell people that I decided to marry my husband in much less time than that. And, uh, but I, it was the hardest decision I ever made because I love that organization and the people in it. But I knew that my, my way forward at that place in life was that I had to do the work that God made me do. And so I took that, started my own company. Ari had a book contract for Bet on Talent that just released last week and in a, a second book forthcoming. And um, I was already speaking about 50 times a year on behalf of Chick-fil-A. And I just felt like that was what I was supposed to do. And to be honest, I've never looked back. It was a great decision. Wow, man, Dan, that's so powerful. I love that I love that quote that you, that God had that, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but people will have to listen to it again. But <laughs> the God had given you work to do, but He also made you to do something. And I think that's so powerful. I think that's something that people can can pause and reflect on. What what have I been given to do versus what have I been made to do? And and they. They're not mutually exclusive, you know, but like everything that that God made you to do something, but you had to do what he gave you to do in order for you to discover the treasure that he had laid within you. Exactly. And and that was so such an important time. You know, sometimes we look at things and we think that, oh, this is a bad thing. You know, we're so convinced it's a bad thing that we don't find the good in it. And, you know. Doing something that wasn't your first love for a period of time, um, or in my case, doing something that wasn't my first love for a period of time, really gave me the opportunity to remind me of what my first love was. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this great um, saying by a a saint in the Catholic tradition named St. Catherine of Siena. And one of her famous sayings is that when you become who God created you to be, you will set the world ablaze. Mm, I've heard that. Well, and, I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't know if yeah, I'm there yet. <laughs> yeah, just keep just keep leaning in and learning on each other, you know, um, right. and you'll be just fine. Deanne, this has been an absolutely brilliant conversation, inspiring conversation, moving, I think, in parts as well. And um, I want to thank you for for joining us on the show. And and before we wrap. I, I want to make sure that people know where they can connect with you, where they can pick up a copy of your just launched book and, and connect with you online. Sure. Well, the first place to connect with me is my website, which is 
deanneturner.com, D-E-E-A-N-N, turner.com. And the book can certainly be purchased right there off the books tab on my website, or of course, any place books are sold in online and in um, bookstores. And then I love to connect with listeners and my followers and readers. And you can do that in several places. Um, first of all, is at, um, is at LinkedIn and it's at Deanne Turner is my username there. My Instagram is also at Deanne Turner and my Twitter handle is at Deanne Turner. And then I have a Facebook author page and um, Deanne Turner. So all of those places I like to connect with listeners and readers. And um, I would love to connect with your listeners there. Yeah. Um, actually, before we get, and we will definitely link to all of those things in the show notes, but I just actually had a, a funny thought that just came to mind. I, I want to know if you ever had the chance to meet John Christ, who is always talking about Chick fil A and making. Oh, I've never met him, but he is so hilarious. I love him. <laughs> okay. I just, I just wanted to see if, if you had an opportunity to connect with him. Okay. So I always conclude every conversation with the same three questions from, for every guest, whether it's yourself or Patrick Lencioni, who I, who I had on the show, who I noticed wrote the forward to your book. The first question is, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Well, I only could come up with a funny answer to this, but if I could, um, it would be my skill set of riding my Peloton every day. Because if I had a superpower, I could um, get to all of my speaking engagements so much quicker that way. (laughs) Uh, What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we're capable of becoming? I'm not enough. And I think lots of people feel that way at some point in their life about something. We're always enough. Our creator created us to be enough. I think another one is, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, I do. But we all need people to make us better. And the last one is, I can't survive this crisis. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we can. You know, the Chinese symbol for crisis is two strokes. The first one means danger. And the second means opportunity. And every crisis leads us to an opportunity for something if we look for it. Even the most deepest hurts in our lives. I think about um, a lady that I met a couple of years ago, and I won't tell the whole story. But tragically, her son harmed his own family and then killed himself. Mm. And every time I think about that, I can't think of much worse situation as a mother a bigger crisis than that one. But I have watched that woman turn her grief into a ministry of helping other women. And and that's the only person that could help you through it is somebody who had been through it. And so she's turned that into a ministry of helping other women that have been through similar situations. And Mm -hmm. um, she puts all of that grief, she pours it into that ministry of serving and helping others. And so um, when I think of a crisis, I think, you know, there's an opportunity. We can get through a crisis and survive it. Wow. Powerful. Powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, last question. First, you have to give me your favorite art form before I ask the question. Music, 
film, could be writing. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have to say literature. Literature. Okay. So we're going to go with poetry. I'm going to narrow this down. Poetry. Okay. So it's a hundred years from now. And you've left a set of instructions for a poet to write something that encapsulates the answer to this question. How will Deanne Turner measure her life? What kind of poem would you have him or her write and why? So, Mike, I think that's the hardest question anyone has ever asked me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine somebody writing that about me, but I know what it would have to be about. It would have to be um, this whole idea that my life was spent, my calling was spent helping other people find their calling. And so I would imagine it would have to do with, that's how I measure my life, is the impact on other people in that specific area of their life. And uh, so I would imagine that poem would address that. Mm. Deanne, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I look forward to continuing the conversation offline and continuing to hopefully build a collaborative relationship with you. It has been completely my pleasure, Mike, and I sure do appreciate you having me here today. You bet. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.